Welcome to the MSF Show, episode number 177. This week, we talk with Brandon Martinez about our personal projects and how to always be learning. Tar and Carl come to Windows. And our take on the Apple slowdown gate. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Aspose, the market leader of .NET and Java APIs for file business formats. Natively work with DocX, XSLX, PPT, PDF, MSG, MPP, image formats, and many more. This week we have Brandon Martinez, friend of the show and podcaster now at The Average Enthusiast. How's it going, Brandon? Oh, it's going great. How are you guys doing? <laughs> so you, uh, you like the show so much that you started your own. That's very flattering. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, the podcast life. I'm like, man, those guys are so cool. I've been yeah. on theirs a couple of times. We're like, we're like I'm just going to rip off the idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you want to hear an exact copy of this podcast, no, just kidding. Uh, so definitely go check out the the Average Enthusiast wherever uh, finer podcasts are sold. Uh, just search for the Average Enthusiast in your podcaster of choice and you will find it. So, Carl, tell us a joke. <laughs> A machine learning algorithm walked into a bar. The bartender asked, what would you like to drink? The algorithm replied, what's everyone else having? <laughs> I, you know, oh, I, I, I've seen that joke a couple times. So I, honestly, you're going to have to explain it to me because I, I kind of I kind of get it. Like, I, I know how you train machine learning models. Like, is that the whole joke? <laughs> yeah. OK, so it's just not very funny. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was just like missing something or if it wasn't that funny. It's. It's humorous. It's funny. It's humorous. <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't funny. It's it's it's, it's a chuckle. It's ha <laughs> See, I thought it was. I, I thought the I thought the one there was one online. It was a comic, and it was a whole bunch of computers that were like in a classroom. Um, I just found that one. I thought that was more amusing, but uh, I don't know. That's just me. Okay, so uh, big announcement before we get things kicked off. Uh, Raygun has decided to renew their sponsorship for all of next year. Uh, so you Yay. get to hear us talk about that quite a bit. I'm super excited because I think they're they're such a cool company, and uh, well, it's a always, really cool product. Yeah, and it's always cool. Like whenever we have JD on, like he always has something really cool to talk about. So we love talking to him. I guess we get you know we can talk to him either way, but um, it's cool talking to him, and uh, it's such a cool product. Like I have a couple of my applications instrumented with their with their stuff, and actually I was working on an app that I will talk about later in the show. Uh, but it, I finally got it to crash and, uh, <laughs> what's well, in Swift. I'll explain later, but I finally got it to crash and I got like this, you know, an email instantly with the details, uh, which was pretty cool. So anyway, Raygun, thank you so much for renewing your sponsorship. Uh, that helps keep the show alive. So we're super excited about that. Okay. Carl, what do we got for the comment of the week? Uh, the comment of the week, uh, actually just disappeared on me. So I can't, I can see the context, <laughs> but I can't see who said it. It is Did, Vlad Bezdin. On Twitter, uh, uh, was actually just recently, this is the end of the year, uh, uh, commenting that he had heard uh, the podcast on Visual Studio 2017 with Amanda Silver, and he thought it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how far behind you are. We love it when you reach out and comment and, you know, uh, about, you know, the episodes we're doing. Any kind of feedback helps us make the show better and gives us uh, feedback and 
you know, it, it makes us feel good about doing this. So yeah, thank you very much uh, for doing this. And if you would like to get mentioned on the show, uh, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. And we really like those five-star iTunes reviews. Yep. And I just want to comment like his, uh, you know, that episode he was listening to is absolutely still relevant and she was oh, such yeah. a great guest. So, I mean, the next time, I mean, I know there's been some some incremental releases to, uh, so, or I should say some point releases to Visual Studio, uh, but at some point we'll we'll have to have her on again once we uh, once we have kind of enough features to to talk about there. Uh, okay, so let's jump into the news. Tar and curl come to Windows. Yeah, so this is part of the Windows <laughs> subsystem for Linux, and you know it's just one of those things that just make it that much easier to use. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it's already. You know, coming out the gate, they came out with a strong release, and they've been updating it pretty awesome. So I think uh, these are two canonical commands that kind of you you kind of need. Yeah, so you need to be able to work with archives and mm-hmm. I- interact with uh, you know things on the web. So well, now so the the Linux subsystem already had these commands, right? So this is this is on the Windows side. I just want to be like super. Oh, clear. oh, so I I missed that part. Oh, okay. So <laughs> good good thing you read this better than I did. Yeah, because I, I I know that those two were already in the Linux subsystem for sure. Like I've used curl from the Linux subsystem quite a bit. So um, it looks like so this, this is, is on the just Windows on the side, command line period, which is great because tons of people for APIs and and things like that, and just for general testing, use curl. So uh, this is just great having it. I mean, you could always have uh, uh, in, installed it separately, but this is pretty cool that it'll just be part of it. Uh, okay, AF underscore Unix comes to Windows. What the heck is this? So, so this is another one of those things about uh, Linuxy things coming to Windows. So, if you're interacting on Windows between two different applications or processes, you kind of like use name pipes and mm-hmm. those kind of work. Um, but Linux has uh, <laughs> those kind of work. <laughs> well, they, they they do, but it's just the job uh, done. Whatever. Yep. So Unix has this, you know, these Unix sockets where you can kind of do the same thing but better. Really, mm-hmm. and uh, starting with the uh, Insider Build seventeen oh six three, you can use the Unix socket, which is AF underscore Unix, uh, in between Win thirty two processes. And um, this doesn't interact with the Windows subsystem for Linux yet, but they kind of hint at the bottom of the article that uh, eventually that might be uh, one of the end things. So that would be really ah, cool. So you could communicate it back and forth. Like- Yes. Seems like the way it would go. I mean, if you're going to open up that kind of functionality, it only yeah. seems that interconnecting them would be the way. Yeah, Brandon's reading the tea leaves there. <laughs> uh, very cool. Okay, so all about span, exploring a new .NET mainstay. This, you know, I've 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 read this over and over again and like I get it, but uh I'm hoping uh have you looked at this much yet, Brandon? Okay, so you know what? I'm in the same boat as you. <laughs> yeah, I've okay. read that no exact idea. article so many times. And for the record, I am not a computer science major. So I think that might be part of my stumbling. <laughs> no, but, I am, and it, um, doesn't, it doesn't really help. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I'm yeah. like, I can kind of see why I would want this. But okay, so I, I Carl don't will do give a us a con- concise explanation here. Take it away, Carl. All right. So there are there, there's essentially a new... Uh, uh, type in uh, uh, .NET called span. Mm-hmm. And we can use these uh, instead of having to reference a chunk of memory and kind of like new something up, we can, and, and I always get these backwards. There's you can put it on the stack or on the heap. And when you mm-hmm. kind of new something up, it goes on one. And mm-hmm. otherwise when it's just in memory, it goes on the other. 
Yeah. And what a span allows you to do is just kind of keep it in memory without having to allocate like that physical, uh, you know, address memory. Um, and like I said, I get this back, I, I get this backwards. So I'm just not going to say it. So, you know, <laughs> if you're one of those people who's shouting at your podcast, you're doing it right now. Yeah. But what you can do with this is if, if you're really kind of low level, you can kind of keep that stuff that's you want to just be in memory it can allow your code to run faster if you do it correctly mm -hmm. and how this kind of started out is they wanted to make some performance enhancements uh in the .NET framework and so they kind of started coming up with this idea that eventually became span and uh from my understanding the .NET team has used this uh, implemented this under the under the covers in a bunch of areas. And our, and that's where we're starting to see some of these uh, improvements in speed now are coming from this uh, span. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's becoming very pervasive. But, uh, you know, some of the, I, th I think it's best to kind of learn by example in this case. Like they had some really good examples where you have, you know, you have like this big array, for example, and you want to pass a section of that uh, to, to, you know, to another method and then have it do some like in place manipulation, uh, span would, would work in, in that type of situation. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's getting implemented all over the place and it works for like things like strings, arrays and, and some other types. Um, so it's, it's going to be like all over the place. Um, and it's just going to add a whole bunch of efficiency. And I feel like if, if you're somebody who's looking at this and is, is cheering, you know, like you kind of know if this is the thing that you need that you've been waiting for. Um, and then if you're somebody like me who, you know, I'm not really like, uh, you know, I'm not in a position where the, the code that I'm writing uh, for these types of structures is, is going to make a huge difference. Uh, then, you know, I, I'm just like, okay, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter. I think there's some, uh, specific situations in, in which I might use it, like I said, passing uh, these things around and trying to manip manipulate subsections. But overall, I I don't think I'm going to use it on a, on a fairly regular basis. But if you are somebody who is going to, then you're pretty excited right now. My, my thought it, with it was... Go ahead, oh, I'm sorry. No, go back. Uh, my thought with it was specifically around strings. That's where I could see my use case using things like, um, you know, like String Builder, right? Yeah. Uh, I wonder if under the hood they're if they haven't already converted some of that over to use uh, span underneath, um, you know, cause there's a lot of efficiency loss when you're working with strings cause strings always get copied. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing a copy and if you're doing a lot of string manipulation, I could see span being really beneficial. There. That's a good question. The only real use case I could think of for me at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. String builder though, is <clears throat> kind of unusual cause you, you are, you don't know, like what you need to allocate ahead of time, right? It's like, hey, I'm going to build up something and it might be tiny and it might be gigantic and I'm not going to tell you. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this is going to help in that situation. Um, if so, like that would, yeah, that would be pretty significant because I think String Builder, yeah, is like it's sort of um, lazily allocating some things and it's, it's just trying to avoid copies and copies and copies. Um, so I'm wondering, yeah, if you could, if you could just allocate like maybe a bigger chunk of memory and then, and then use, uh, start writing in the subsets using this. So, okay. Yeah. So if you want to learn a little bit more about span, uh, a, a really good resource is either follow Immo Landworth on Twitter or look up, look him up on YouTube. He actually has a couple of videos on C sharp and span. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I actually searched on Twitter, I think for .NET span, and there's actually a lot of good, a lot of people that have written uh, really good uh, blog posts on this. So there's there's lots of resources on there. Yeah, he's a PM on the .NET team, so he's a, he's right yep. from the source there. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, here's the here's the big one. Uh, <laughs> Apple addresses <laughs> why some iPhones with older batteries are benchmarking slower. Um, so I don't know if we want to give like the the super the super short version of this, Carl. Well, I can yeah. Let, let's do that. So uh, apparently there was this guy. He his his phone was old, uh, battery was going, so he benchmarked it using one of the benchmark apps in the App Store. Yep. And then he got his battery replaced. And then he ran the same benchmark again and noticed that the, the CPU was reporting a way different, uh, you know, performance number. Like it was like, definitely looked like it was being throttled. And he's like, why would a battery be doing that? Yeah. So he put it out, I believe on Reddit and it kind of got a bunch of attention. Um, bunch of articles started going and eventually Apple responded, I think yeah. twice. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and that's where this gets interesting. So it, by the looks of it, you know, like, Apple saw batteries going down, uh, performance going down. So they just started slowing down the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, <clears throat> I guess is legit, right? Because they were supposedly crashing. I guess the, one of the issues that I have with this is like all the discussions around the iPhone six, the six S and then the seven. So like my seven could potentially be throttled right now. Um, and actually I'm, I mean, I'm like the destroyer of batteries. Like I, I've actually never had any battery issues, but I, I assume, you know, I, I have on my phone, I've, I've just sort of made this conscious decision. There's certain batteries that I, I will, you know, sort of baby and I will be very conscious of, but my phone is one of those things where it's like, it's, it's such an important tool that I'm like, I don't care about the battery and the, you know, the, the life of the battery and the number of cycles, I'm going to charge it. Like whenever I feel like it, I'm just going to use it how I need to. So I have a feeling that I have probably a high cycle count. I'm probably wearing out my battery and there's a good chance that I'm going to end up being throttled on this. Um, but I also like my kids have, um, an old iPhone, I think it's a five S and what's interesting is, uh, you know, Apple says that apparently when the batteries start to get old, that, you know, the phone will start crashing. Well, like I've never seen that. Um, I guess I'm going to have to take their word on that. Um, I have had the phone like, uh, just about burn a vehicle down. I had, I had a van. I have to dig up the picture. Uh, but the, the, the phone got stuck between two of the seats and it actually burned like kind of like a, almost like, um, uh, like a waffle iron type of thing. Like there's a, there is a, an iPhone five imprint in that, in that, in that seat. And it was our old van, <laughs> but I have a, I have a photo of it somewhere. Uh, but anyway, so, so like, does the, supposedly the iPhone five has that issue, but Apple seems to be completely ignoring that, um, in their, in their response. So, so what is their response, Carl? So their initial response was just, you know, you know, a few updates <laughs> ago, we, we put in some code that, you know, you know, when yeah. we detect that your battery, you know, can't handle, you know, the performance of the phone, we're going to slow down the phone yep. to to make your battery life seem like, you know, last as long as it should be. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the, the thing that ultimately got people upset is kind of the original tone deafness of, of Apple's like, we, we did this because we're smarter than you. You know, Apple yeah. in certain it's for circles, it's for your own good. We know better. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not going to say, you know. Apple, I'm not going to say Apple's right or wrong in this. I'm just saying, you know, like in some circles, they do have that thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as a user, especially as a power user, there's times where, you know, I feel like I should have the performance of my phone. Like I may not care. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you know, like Windows has the setting, like more battery, more power. Mm -hmm. And it would just be nice with, you know, the, you know, Apple to have some way in the UI, you know, even if you, even if they don't give us that control, it's like, Hey, we've detected that your, your phone is, 
degraded. Therefore, we're going to do these things behind the scenes, even if you have yeah. to dig for it in settings. To yeah, me, that would be great. Yeah, I think the notification is is the biggest thing. And they have said that they're going to add that. So they will tell you when this happens. And to me, like even the, the battery replacement thing, I, I really don't care about that. I, I The notification is what's important to me because then I will know when it's happening and then I can start to look at options for uh, for replacing the battery. And if it is, a lot of people are, are giving them flat because they are doing it for $29 now instead of $79. I think that's a reasonable price. Um, they're only doing it for 2018. I think that should be the regular price, you know, because they have sort of fallen on the sword over this thing where, you know, you, you can't replace the battery yourself. Um, so I would be pretty happy with them if they said, you know, Hey, for, you know, indefinitely, obviously that price has to go up over time, you know, $39, maybe in a couple of years, but I would be pretty happy if we could always just replace our battery for that price. So that after two years I could do that. Or, you know, cause I don't know if you've run into this, like if you ever looked at buying a used iPhone, um, my number one concern, it's actually not even scratches or the physical appearance is actually the battery. I mean, I'm worried that somebody like me owned the phone <laughs> that I'm about to buy <laughs> and they basically abused it for two years and then I'm going to get the phone and it's going to only hold the charge for a couple hours. So I just overall, like sort sort of regardless of, of this whole thing that they're in right now, I wish that they would just offer $29 battery replacements and I would just feel better about the whole thing, period. Give me a notification when, when you are slowing it down, give me a $29 option and then every year or two years or whatever, if I choose to keep my phone, I'm just going to go get the battery replaced and then, and then there's no issue. And, and, and kind of like how you do things, I work on the trickle down economics phone strategy with my yep. children. So they yep. get our old phones. Yep. And in the past, you know, when my, the first time we did this, we gave my wife's phone to my oldest son mm-hmm. and I went through and got one of those kits and did the, you know, whole do it yourself thing. And I mean, you're literally tearing your phone to shreds in order to do that. That thing is coming apart in quite a few pieces and many of them are very, very tiny. Well, and you're going to so, lose your waterproofing as well. I don't know if when Apple does it, if you get to keep the waterproofing, I'm, I'm but, thinking but, maybe not. But either way, like, you know, if, if this is something, this is now at a price, like at 80 bucks, you know, I wouldn't have done it, but now this is at a price, like at yeah. the two year mark, when we, you know, trickle it down to our kids, I would just pay the 30 bucks a piece get them new batteries. It's essentially a new phone in my opinion that. Yeah, exactly. Cause that's the and, only thing that ages, right? I mean, nothing else on that. I mean, everything else on that phone is going to last 20 years. It's literally just the battery. That is the only thing that gets worse over time. Right. Well, the screen is going to crack the screen long before that, especially with a teen. Mm, sure. Well, I've, I mean, I've had, I've had an iPhone where the screen was actually not in great condition. Like it actually compared to like a new phone, especially the, the brightness wasn't there. Um, it started kind of going out. So the screen and the battery, really? I'd say, oh, things. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that's an, what was that? That was an iPhone 4S. Okay. Because, um, I mean, time. it's LEDs, right? I don't think the LEDs would necessarily degrade. The LCD panel itself might. I wonder if that's what's going on there. Um, and actually, what could end up happening, too, is it's not able to, like, block the light as much. So your blacks are actually going to get worse. Um, so you're just going to have less contrast in there. Interesting. Um, any final comments on that, Brandon? So I, I do have a question and mm-hmm. I, I haven't done a lot of research into this. Um, I can totally understand Apple's stance on why they did it. They should have been better at the communication aspect. But my question is, especially in regards to laptops, do any of the major OSs behind the scenes do the same thing? Or even at the hardware level, like a lot of the you know Intel processors and stuff are meant for laptops. 
do they automatically adjust based on battery voltage and things like that? Yeah. I, I, so I, 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 think, I, can't, I can't. Oh, go ahead, Carl. So th- this is slightly different, but if you write a UWP application, there are certain, if you look in the SDKs, there are certain features that will start getting turned off when um, the OS detects it's in a in a bad state. Uh, the place where you can really notice this is with the new fluent design aspects. So you can have all like the crazy gradients and, you know, uh, translucency effects. But when you're uh, on battery and your laptop starts going down to the lower percentages, all of a sudden you'll notice that like the transparency goes away. Well, and that's in response I, to that. So that, that, yeah, that, that is different. different, but that is different, but it is one of those things where you are getting, you know, the operating system is taking certain control away from you either as a user developer or both and, you know, changing things on you in order to preserve the battery and the performance of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suspect- so I'm curious if because uh, so I'm curious because Apple already has like the low power mode or low battery mode yeah. or whatever they call it. And they said in a future update, they're going to let you know a little bit more information about your battery. I wonder if they'll tie it into something like that, because I'm sure they're already turning off features and stuff behind the scenes. Yeah, um, probably, you know, we, you know, their multitasking works a lot different than uh, like Android, for example. I wonder if they're pushing how um, assertive they are on some of the background processes and stuff. So they might be doing some of that stuff naturally. It's just now they decided to touch the processor. So I'm curious if that low power mode or low battery mode will open up that, or maybe they'll even lock your phone into that mode and kind of go from there. So it'll be interesting to see what yeah. they do with that. Maybe. Cause I mean, I mean the, the reason that that might help a little bit is they're going to shut down some of those background processes. I really don't think those are causing the issue though. I, I think it's specific apps that are really stressing the CPU. Um, I would even think like your browser would be using it the whole way. Um, I would think that games and things like that could potentially be spiking your CPU. Cause here's what happens. Like lithium ion is actually pretty good about maintaining the, the voltage, um, but over time, as the as they do degrade, I mean, you're going to have a lower voltage, and to get the same wattage, you know, the the CPU is still it's it's asking for the power that it's asking for. Your amperage goes up, and it, the amperage generally is is uh, uh, is going to create a lot more heat, and um, um, you know, over the same size wires, it's definitely it's going to it's def- definitely going to cause a lot more heat and other issues. I suspect, so my, my best guess on this, these mobile chips, I mean, they're, they are built, you know, to, to like such fine tolerances that I, I think they just can't handle it. I mean, if, if the, if the voltage starts to drop, I mean, I think they're just, they're just losing it. So, um, I think that's why, you know, you bring the, the, you bring the speed down, it starts requesting less power, you know, in those spikes, it just, the, the, the peak of power that it's requesting, you're, they're basically just bringing that down, um, which I think is actually a, a pretty reasonable solution. Now, you asked about the, the desktops and laptops. Um, Intel, I know, like back in the day, like whenever AMD started coming in into prevalence, um, you know, there, were, there was a stark contrast in there and how they designed these things. You know, Intel, there was, the, there was this uh, video, I remember, man, this must have been 15 years ago, but they basically had an AMD computer right next to an intel computer and they pop the cpu fan off of each one and the intel one like they showed the screen and like the game just started slowing down and the amd one literally started smoking you know it just had no (laughs) it just had no thermal controls right um but the intel processors 
Um, and I actually had this happen recently where the, uh, the fan popped off of my son's Intel processor in his desktop and he just kept complaining. He's like, things are laggy and I don't know why. And I, it was stumping me for the longest time. And finally I physically looked at it and sure enough, there was a physical separation between that, that heat sink. Um, oh, wow. so the, the, the processor itself was, was going into a throttle state, but it wasn't damaging itself. And Intel, that is like one thing that they are really, really good at. So the, uh, the short answer, <laughs> maybe the long answer, the long answer to your question <laughs> is that I'm pretty sure that Intel is, is immune to this issue. Um, and if you've ever done any overclocking, like you can screw on with like the voltages, uh, that you go to your CPU, they have an extreme tolerance for how much power you give them, the voltage you give them thermals, like Intel has that like in the bag. Um, so I don't think you will ever see that on a laptop as that, you know, as the voltage starts to get lower on an old cell, the amperage starts to go up, the chip starts to heat up. It's going to automatically start to throttle itself. So at a hardware level, they're doing it. So I think Apple is actually making up for this at a, at a, at a software level. And I think what an interesting part of this conversation, I wonder if Apple is thinking about this is actually just building it into the chip itself. You know, it's like, Hey, just, you know, monitor that. Don't, don't just, don't just wholesale bring my CPU speed down, you know, for when I'm doing these tests, like just throttle when needed. You know, if, if I'm outside in like cold weather, for example, um, and, and the, and you have a, you know, you think there's gonna be all this heat. I mean, if there's proper cooling, it should still not crash. So I'm, I'm just wondering if Apple's just going to get better about this and it'll just, what'll end up happening at the end of the day for users is it'll be a lot harder to detect because they're going to run a benchmark and, and before that their phone was off. So they're going to run a benchmark and it's going to say, oh yeah, we're running at full speed, but little do they know when they're sitting, you know, when the phone's been sitting in a car on a hot day or they're sitting there playing Candy Crush for a long time, heating up the phone. Now their CPU speed is actually dropping down because of a combination of factors. It's hot and they have old batteries. Um, so it'll just, like I said, it'll be harder to detect. Um, and it, it, it will just make sense. And I don't know, I don't know how, how Apple's going to play this game long-term then. Aspose offers a powerful set of file management APIs with which developers can create applications which can create, open, edit, and save the majority of popular business file formats. Their product range supports a multitude of file formats, including Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoint presentations, PDF documents, OneNote, Outlook, Project, Visio files, popular image formats, and many others. Aspose produces APIs for .NET, Java, and the cloud, which can be utilized in almost any modern language available today. Visit www.aspose.com for a free 30-day no-limitations trial. And if you get stuck, message the friendly support team for help. All technical support is offered free of charge. Remember, if you're a lucky winner, you will receive a free developer small business license for Aspose.Words for .NET, a powerful toolkit to work with Word documents in your applications. Yeah, that'll be really interesting with the benchmarks because I, I can't remember what device it was, but there was one that got caught cheating the benchmarks. <laughs> it would detect that the benchmark was running and then oh. do optimal performance. Yeah. I want to say it was like the the one plus or something like that okay. was doing that. Um, so especially if it's at a hardware level, Apple could totally just give you the numbers you want to see and it'll be totally transparent. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think they're I think right now they're just they're using a giant stick to to solve uh, a small problem. Uh, Cuz like I said, I mean R5, I don't think it's ever crashed. The battery is ancient. I mean, it's 
what, three, four years old. And uh, if, if there is an issue, then it, it should surface itself in there. And and going back to my original statement, like why why does Apple not care about that phone? I guess it's too old for them to care about it. Why can't I get a $29 battery replacement on the iPhone 5? That would be nice. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we move on. We probably talked that one to death. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> Carl. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apple might combine <laughs> iOS and Mac apps next year. How innovative. Yeah, so it, it, the be- the best that I can see, and like this hasn't been confirmed everywhere, but you know, it's you know, it's rumors and leaking that uh, Apple's going to do something like this. And the thing that I thought was really interesting wasn't really this, you know, story itself, but listening to a bunch of other people who are in the Apple ecosystem having their comments on it, because pretty universally they're all like, "This is not the same as UWP." And then they go on and on about the ways that they wish they would do it, Apple would do it. And it pretty much sounds exactly like how Microsoft <laughs> does it with UWP apps. Yeah. Uh, a, a good example is uh, if you listen to the Accidental Tech podcast, you know, that was literally the first thing they said is like, this is exactly not UWP. Then they botch it up. Oh, like what UWP is and isn't. Um, yeah, they have it's a hard enough for, for it. Well, it's, it's hard enough for Microsoft people to understand what UWP is. It, it right. really is a confusing technology when you're not like you when you're not really working with it. Yeah, and when you're definitely not even in Microsoft area, uh, it's easy to get things screwed up. Which is why I like to listen to all the different technology uh, podcasts just so I can keep myself informed. But you know. We have no idea how Apple's going to do this. There's a multiple uh, different approaches they could take, but I, I do think this is a, a positive sign because iOS is definitely uh, has a healthy app market. Yeah, and it, it definitely feels like you know I have a few Macs sitting here, and it definitely feels like those app stores are pretty dusty. So the, you you bring up such a great point, and this is I think this is the core of the issue is. Can you get developers to do whatever the thing is you want them to do? Because Apple could say <clears throat> tomorrow they could say, hey, we're we're totally changing how iOS apps work, period. And none of your code transfers over and we're dropping the Mac. <clears throat> you got to do everything in, I don't know, in .NET. And I mean, they could totally change how all of that works. Well, that's and, not going to happen. Well, I'm just it's just it's just a hypothetical. OK, so they they do that. And at that point, if all the if every developer on the planet goes, hmm, okay, let's just rewrite our stuff, then it will be successful. So I I, I just give you an, an extreme example to kind of prove a point here is the at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is if developers come to the platform. Um, you know, with, and they, with and they definitely do. have the developer. Uh following i mean it, yeah it doesn't matter what what you think about their apis or whatever people are developing for yeah. iphone ipad yeah period and, and, they, it, and they will put those developers through hell i mean let's be clear <laughs> i mean here's here's objective c and two rocks <laughs> you know um they 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 have at least historically i think it's gotten better you know with swift and some of these other things but historically they have been very apple's been very user focused and not very developer focused there's probably some developers that that maybe don't feel that way but that that's what it looks like to me um that's called stockholm syndrome yeah yeah 
So um, again, it just it just comes under if developers go there. Listen, had had Windows if you know for Windows Phone, had every iPhone developer said, "Whoa, that's way better," and dropped their iPhone apps and ported everything over to Windows Phone. Guess what? Windows Phone would be number one right now. I mean, agree, right? If all the developers had gone there, because then all the apps would be there. Well, and none of- it would at least be alive. Yeah, I mean, nobody. I should. Well, I shouldn't say nobody, but it, it's not like we're buying the iPhone just for the hardware. I mean, if if iPhone didn't have any apps and it's still the same hardware, like we wouldn't be buying it, right? We'd be we'd be going to Android, or we could, we could say the same thing about Android if there were no apps. The fact is that all the apps right now are on iPhone or Android. Um, that's, that's just the reality of, of the situation. So it's wherever the devs go. So whatever Apple, so I'm just kind of laying the foundation here that whatever Apple does, um, it's success. I can't, I can't predict that success at all. It's only going to be based on whether or not the developers buy in and they agree with, with Apple's vision. Now, kind of moving on, if, uh, I think it would be cool to be able to run iOS apps on OS 10. Like, why not? Um, that seems like kind of an obvious thing. Um, but then where, where, where things get cloudy for me is what's the next step after that? You know, do you, I, you know, you can start to unify some of the programming things, but if you start to do this thing like UWP does where this app will run on desktop and on phone, um, and it just it just makes more work and and I'm not sure you know with the iPhone I mean it it's kind of nice being constrained <laughs> here are the three device sizes that I can have and it will always look like this um and whenever you throw the desktop into it it just it makes it so that you have to spend a lot more thought cycles on it and it'll be interesting to see um how how but, the developers But that's a nice piece on UWP if yeah. you want to just worry about mobile um, you could and just be restricted to those sizes, and it's really opting into the desktop experience. Oh, absolutely. And, then, absolutely, and and then having to worry about that. So, I mean, obviously, there's work to do, but as long as you're making that overall work less than writing the application twice. So, I, I'm no UWP developer, so I, I have a question for you, Carl. Um, how does that work with like pricing? So, if I buy an application. And it's UDP, UWP across all platforms. I just buy it once and it runs everywhere. Or can a developer choose to say like, well, you have to upgrade it to get it to run on the desktop? So as a developer, you can choose which one of those that you want. You can buy okay. it per platform or once and have it everywhere. And there's also, a, I think, a newer pricing model that um, is available where you can have a suite of apps that are related that if you buy any one, then you get like others for free. Okay. So that's because I like could see that being, pricing. Okay. I could see that being one of the issues with the, the unified experience because there was uh, so I was looking at task apps and uh, I always go to things was always kind of my go-to on the Mac platform, but I haven't owned it since like two versions ago mm-hmm. and I wanted to buy it, but then I'm like, Oh, I have to buy the Mac app an <laughs> iPhone app and an iPad app. They're separate. So they didn't even merge the iPhone oh, and really? iPad together. So I would have been out like a hundred bucks and I'm like, I'll go with Wonderlist, I guess, you know, because yeah. <laughs> it, that's cross-platform and free. So, yeah. you know, I was I was curious because I know some developers will want to follow that model. And if everything's in one package, how would that work? So mm-hmm. if they're taking care of it, then I could see. And that's really a store feature. So it's up to Apple to provide, you know, to choose to provide those options. 
Yeah, right. which they're not really great at their store. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> developers have really been complaining, you know, especially about uh, higher priced apps and, and that type of thing. I know there's there's been some changes to support that. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in Apple there. I do have a fair amount of confidence in their ability to drive developers to do whatever thing they say, because it's always this vicious cycle, too. So if if developers didn't believe in whatever strategy Apple puts forth, then Apple would drop it. Right. Because, right. you know, why, you know, it, it, that, that's what, that's, what's always funny. You know, I, I, I talked to developers and luckily like the, the silver light conversation hasn't come up recently, but you know, that'll come up. Like why did Microsoft get rid of silver light? And it's like, well, Microsoft didn't get rid of silver light. Like the world did. <laughs> and, and it's the, and it's the same thing. Like if, if the world chooses not to embrace whatever model Apple comes out with, then they will have killed it. Like, let's don't pretend like the companies are killing successful products, right? Like you said earlier, like Apple's not going to kill, you know, they're they're not going to like make every app incompatible all of a sudden and make it so you have to completely rewrite it in a different language. Apple won't do that. Like we know that. So it's really not even Apple's choice. We think it is. We want to blame Apple, you know, but it's not really their choice. It's really, again, where the developers go. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll just, you know, they, they have to lay out the right groundwork, reach critical mass, see if they can get people to do it. I think starting with the iOS stuff is good because the, the app store on the Mac is like is pretty desolate and pointless. Um, it's I, I don't want to say it's much better on the Windows side, but at least you can uh, use uh, Centennial and, and bring apps in. So like Paint.net, I can get that through the store, which I think is great. And that was a free app where you charge five bucks to get it through the store. I happily paid five dollars so that when I set up a new computer, I can say like, you know, hey, install all my apps and they all download. Um, so I paid five dollars for that convenience. Um, so I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to see what what framework Apple Apple gives us here. And and we'll kind of take it from there and see if developers uh, think it's good enough or not. And maybe they'll ignore the Mac. I mean, the thing is, it, there's, you know, we, we, we I, I wouldn't bet too much on Apple's success because, you know, the iPhone, if you, if you put them on a chart, the iPhone, you know, sales versus like Mac sales, like the Mac is, it's nothing. Apple doesn't need the Mac. <laughs> um, I mean, you use it for development. So, I mean, you need it from that perspective, but from a, you know, sales perspective of selling apps, you really don't need it. Any final comments on that? Okay. Um, and then one final Apple bashing story. Go ahead, Carl. <laughs> All right. So this actually came through this morning as I was just reading my news on Twitter. Um, so Apple has those new town square style stores. And one of the first ones was their Chicago store. And uh, apparently it's a very beautiful store, quote, well-designed. As long as you don't visit there in the winter, because apparently it's accumulating icicles over the passageways where people walk on the sidewalk and they've had to block off the sidewalk and, and do other things uh, and put up signs to let you know not to get hit by these gigantic falling icicles. Yeah. Womp womp. Okay, I don't think we have to comment it anymore. So let's get to the meat of the show, which we haven't even gotten to yet. Uh, but basically, the idea behind the show was was always be learning. And I know I've mentioned this before on the show, but I thought we'd dive into this a little bit more. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we brought Brandon on, too, because I know he likes to do um, side projects or um, he really helps other people out with these types of problems. And um, so 
you know, I, I guess I wanted to start with kind of how I approach this. Um, you know, I was looking at my GitHub page uh, earlier and I'm approaching a hundred repositories on there. And, you know, you could say, oh, well, you're just putting like a whole bunch of stupid stuff out there. And I, you know, some of them are just forks of, of other applications where I made changes, but many, many of them are, you know, basically each repo is a solution to a problem that I had. And that's kind of how I approach things like, oh, I have a problem. Let me write some code to, to solve that problem. And I go into, you know, I kind of went into this with the intention or the, the thing that kind of guides me is I want to, um, I want to get in the habit where like creating a new thing is easy. You know, there's like, I've seen so many people will like, they'll create a project and then you say, Hey, where's the code? And like, Oh, I haven't published it yet. And you know, they keep like drawing it out and it's like, can you please get, like, I want to see this code. Finally they get it on GitHub and there's no readme and there's no instructions. And you're like, Oh, come on, man. So, you know, like I'm in this habit of creating the readme, uh, you know, very soon, very early. Um, and then maintaining it as time goes on, like those types of things. Uh, so I just have a good habit of creating new projects and maintaining them. So the first one I wanted to talk about, I think I might've mentioned on the show before, but, uh, the code is live now and I, and, and you can go take a look at it. Uh, it's embarrassing. I actually have to, I have a whole bunch of commented out code and stuff that I still have to remove. So like, don't judge me based on this code, but basically I call the app Jason life. Uh, or Jason's life. I don't know. I probably rename, I probably have different names all over the place, but the idea was I had all these, these ideas for, for things that I wanted an application to do. Uh, but there was like no co cohesive idea around it. Like, you know, how I would actually like sell this app and, and give it to other people. So I, um, so the idea behind it was I'm just going to build an iPhone app and I'm just going to put some features in it and play with things that I want to play around with. So I'm actually going to pull up the readme here to like walk through some of the features that it has. Uh, so one thing that it does, oh, so actually before I mention that, uh, the whole app is written in Swift um, just because, you know, I've been doing a lot of cloud work and I wanted to do something that was like totally different than what I normally do. So I'm like, I'm going to use like Apple's latest language and build an iPhone app that is not useful to anybody else. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it because why not? And I'm going to do something different. So some of the features here. So, um, you know, I, I live off of, uh, interstate 405 and there's, uh, HOV tolls and they end up changing and I, I don't really have to, to get into that, but, um, it's very important for me to know like what the current toll is because it changes the way that I will route my drive because it's kind of like a SQL database that, uh, is busy. And then you put a new query into there where that query will be super slow. Uh, basically the tolls, they go from 75 cents up to $10 within a matter of minutes. So it's really important to understand when that happens. So what the one thing that this app does is it goes and it queries the, the tolls. And my first instinct was to route this through like an Azure function. Uh, but I actually wanted to make this app not very dependent on the cloud. If I could avoid it, I wanted to do everything locally whenever I could again, just to do something different. Um, so it also, this, this next feature is actually, I think the only one that depends on the cloud. Um, it actually, the app actually tracks my location. Um, so I request background application up to, or background location updates. Um, cause I really like that feature. I think that's such a cool feature on phones. Um, but basically I, I get that location and then I send it to an Azure function, uh, that privately in my own SQL database stores my location history. I don't know what I'm going to use it for. I, I don't have anything built on it yet, but I just have the raw data. So basically anytime I, I move significantly to a new location, it tracks that in that SQL database. And I have a few thousand records in there now, which is kind of cool. Um, so this was kind of a neat feature because 
I got to learn about how location works on on an iOS device, and it, it it helps too whenever you're just using location based applications on the iPhone, understanding how they work. How does that work when they're in the background? Uh, when your application terminates, like how does it still receive the location? Um, it actually revives your application and sp- sends you a flag and gives you um, it gives you a a short window of opportunity to um, to basically recreate the location object and grab the latest location. So my app does all of this. So basically, no matter what you do to the app, as long as you don't uninstall it, it will it will be tracking my location, which is pretty cool. Um, I also have it set up to give me local notifications, not cloud notification, not push notifications, local notifications. Um, and right now what it does is it sends me a notification when I get to work or when I get home and it just pops up a notification, just a pointless notification. Like I already know I'm at home, but it tells me anyway. But again, I wanted to play with that feature and understand how it worked. And one thing that's interesting about that is Apple in a previous version of iOS, for example, um, and this kind of gives me some insight into how Apple thinks in a previous version, I think it was like iOS nine. If you send, if your application sends itself a local notification, uh, starting with iOS nine, if you've compiled your app for that iOS or later, uh, the application will just eat it. (laughs) So you actually never see the uh, notification, which is really uh, infuriating as a developer. So what you have to do is you have to create a certain method on your app delegate that says, please don't eat my notification and actually send it to me. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, let me see here. Oh, and then I integrated Raygun for error logging. And I mentioned earlier, um, you know, that, uh, that I was, I was having trouble figuring out if uh, Raygun was even working because I wasn't getting any errors. Uh, turns out Apple, what, what's, what's interesting, some kind of quick lessons on Swift they uh they try to make it so it's really difficult to crash your application uh which is which makes sense whenever you're writing a phone application they also have um very explicit handling of nulls you know so i kind of learned some of those things you know just kind of expanding my horizons in in how things work on a on a in a different language um swift is um it's interesting <laughs> um a couple lessons on that uh, every version is completely different than the previous version. Um, so JSON parsing, for example, I was using some old examples and whenever you search for an example on how to parse JSON, 99% of them are old and, uh, don't really, they tell you it's just excruciating. Um, I found the way to do it in Swift four. That's actually easy. Um, I think the rest of this I'm going to skip. You can just check out my readme for some of the, the things that I learned about it, but it was just kind of neat, you know, opening my eyes as to how, Apple thinks about developing a language that is uh, dev- designed, you know, initially for a phone and what kind of attributes a language like that would have. So any questions from you guys on that? Okay. No, I mean, I, you were kind of talking to me, uh, like just kind of as you were doing some of this stuff. So, yeah. you know, you know, I, I kind of lived through some of your progress on that and uh, kind of like uh, my next example, you kind of lived through some of the end part of my progress through yep. it. So, um, you know, you know, I, I think, you know, as developers, we all kind of have our like little side projects and tools that we build for us. And, you know, sometimes you use it for a while and it goes away and sometimes you build a tool for yourself and it just sticks around. And this is one of those. So the, the problem I was trying to solve is, you know, I'm a pretty quick typist, but the the one mistake that I keep doing over and over again is I just hit the caps lock key instead of the A sometimes. And it just, 
annoys you oh, when you yeah. don't see that. And you just typing and there's just like, the, you're like, oh, I hit caps lock for like 30 characters and it sucks. <laughs> so a long time ago, I actually figured out how to like hook into Windows, like the keyboard event, like globally and like, and am able to squash that from ever happening. So, you know, I can prevent it. Are you Add preventing some... the key, key, the caps lock from turning on or are you uncapitalizing? Like what are, what are you... What are you doing? I'm preventing actually? it from even so before it actually the OS registers it. I'm saying it ne- registers what registers so caps lock reg- being turned on. Reg- yes, and okay. in fact, I could do this with any key event. I just happen to be targeting caps lock in this case. So before it like goes on to say, "Hey, I'll pass this on to the any other listener that's AKA your app or any yeah. other app," I, I'm going and just saying, "Nope, it never happened." So okay. <laughs> it's a tool that was really handy and I, I've had this in, in multiple forms and essentially it's, it's kind of a Frankenstein of an app. You know, it's, it started off as a console app, but I, I there's like also wind forms and WPF APIs in there as well. So it, it's a pattern that's worked well for me, but you know, now that it, you know, I've want to just carry this forward. Like I can't make this a UWP app because you're living a sandbox and I can't like globally control keyboard from within a sandbox. It just doesn't work. But luckily Centennial is the technology uh, where you can bring your old code and put them in the store. And I've always wanted to put this in the store so far as like, if you look at the code, this is like really concise, really clean. Like I definitely architected this to be like something that's going to be as bulletproof as possible. Mm -hmm. And but it's just writing installers suck. So when it, uh, Project Centennial first came out, I actually, uh, before it came out, I had access to the Centennial team and they confirmed that this this code even works because the way I'm hooking into the kernel, like we, they didn't even know if it would work. But they confirmed that it worked. But at, the, at that time, you the original version, you kind of needed to like have an installer and it would like do some tricks to like package that up for you. Um, so I didn't do that because I was lazy. And then, uh, kind of like a later version, you could just do a command line build of it, of this and package it as an Apex. And while that was great, it was still kind of like, and I got it working, but I was like, I'm not going to want to update this. And it's, it's still too much work for me. But, uh, one of the recent things that has come out is, uh, there's a new, uh, project in visual studio called like the windows store packaging project and this is where it gets really interesting so if you remember like back in the day if you wanted a simple installer there was an installer project and you just added that to your solution you say hey this this is my other project here kind of just like install that for me and that's essentially all you had to do well this does that but for apexes and so i just literally opened my solution added that project pointed it to my other one and it worked so uh, now the only thing that I need to do is I need to get my Dev Center account flagged to be able to uh, publish a, a Centennial app because that, there's still a um, oh really a limitation a limitation on who can publish those. Mm-hmm. So anybody can make a Centennial app, but they're still kind of manually approving publishers on a case by case basis. So I have to get through that hurdle yet, and it will be in the store. So if you're looking for this solution, uh, I'll definitely let you guys know when it finally gets in. That's cool. So I what's what what I find really interesting about this project is actually not even the code at all. Like I actually yeah. think that's like the least interesting part about it. I think the the reason that this project is like super valuable is that 
you have a great understanding of Centennial. Like, you're not just telling somebody how Centennial works. Like, you have actually been through a couple iterations of it. And, you know, you've kind of kept up and, and tried it through each of these iterations. and been like, wow, this is hard. Wow, this is easier. Wow, this is super easy right now. And, and, and you know, like it's, it's solidified in your brain, like that thing that you went through, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's an experience that you had. And now even like knowing that there's a flag, you know, to put the Centennial apps in the store is like, that's super valuable information because if I was talking about Centennial to somebody, like I would have never even realized that, you know, that would have been a phone call that I would have gotten later. Like, Hey, I'm running into this issue. I'm like, Oh, I got to go check on that. You know? So I think even, even if you are building something that, that, you know, like my, my app, the app itself that I'm writing is like a waste of time. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, that's not what I'm getting out of it. It's all of these other things and understanding how that works. Like I've even played around with like Wi-Fi debug, you know, Wi-Fi debugging, um, and, and, you know, things like that. Like it, you just really understand all the, the, you know, side aspects of it. So that's pretty cool. Should we, uh, move on to Brandon's? Yeah. Okay. What do you, you got for Brandon? us, Brandon? All right. So uh, you made a good point about how uh, a lot of these side projects end up being things that you need and you use. Mm -hmm. Uh, And actually, Jason, to your point as well, uh, how you end up learning about the fringe around them. Like, why doesn't it work in certain scenarios and stuff like that? So uh, one of the things I've been working on for the last, oh, I'd say it's probably been about a year now, but I've really just gotten into it uh, probably in the last three months is I've been working with HomeKit, Mm. which is just a can of worms. Um, so I, so I, I, uh, I have a raspberry Pi that I run on my network. Uh, I use it for like pie hole. Um, but I also run, um, Homebridge on it. So Homebridge, for those of you that don't know, is basically an in- intermediary node process that you can run to tap into Apple's HomeKit ecosystem so that you can integrate things that aren't supported. So, uh, if you've ever looked at like some of the, you know, the Philips stuff and Wemo and things like that, those don't really run on HomeKit. However, they all have great or decent APIs and they support a lot of the other platforms like Google Home and Alexa and things like that. Uh, so what HomeBridge does is it builds a platform so that you can essentially build a hub. And then there's other developers out there that basically make the components to tap into those other ecosystems. So, for example, I... Um, See, I have a ton of Wemo devices. Uh, I have a Chamberlain um, garage door opener, MyQ mm-hmm. uh, or whatever that's called. Um, Nest thermostat doesn't support HomeKit. But thanks to HomeBridge, all of these things can integrate. So like one of the things I've done is, uh, and you can, you can actually see this out on my GitHub as well. Um, I created a plugin for a uh, third-party service called Sensor.net, which is basically a uh, pretty simple, like home security uh, camera uh, endpoint. So, like you can point all of your, you know, uh, in Ethernet or Wi-Fi based cameras at this as an endpoint. It FTPs images up to it, uh, and then you can view, um, you know, the motion and stuff like that. If you want something in the cloud, uh, what this does is it integrates with their API because they have a dev stack, and then it pulls it into HomeKit so that from your HomeKit. Um, enable devices, mainly your iPhone or iPad, you can pull up the home app and you can actually see your cameras then. So for me, it was like really digging into just what HomeKit is. Uh, Cause honestly that I couldn't find any good examples on it. Yeah. Uh, Homebridge is the only thing I could find that dug into the real internals of HomeKit. Uh, so I can kind of understand like why 
there aren't really many devices yeah. out there. Well, how how does it work? Um, is it, it is it just? I mean, are there like endpoints exposed on your network, and it just picks that up, or does it have to get registered with Apple? Like, how does how does that work? Yeah, so that that's so it's really interesting. Um, so I'll answer that question, and I'll give a little anecdote that I ran into. Um, basically, it's it's generally local, mm-hmm. so you you don't need like a a like a master hub or anything like that. It's all based on your network. Now, if you have an Apple TV. Um, third generation, fourth gen, 4K, or you can actually even use an iPad as long as it's on all the time. You can treat that as the master hub, which then lets you access your devices remotely. So I can't, if I leave my home network, I wouldn't be able to access anything. But adding an Apple TV to the mix and registering it, which I sold iCloud and all that stuff, (laughs) which you did. I am using the one you sold me. Um, So yes, I... um, Hopefully you can't see anything. Um, no. Uh, so as long as you register that and everything kind of just connects to it, it opens up to the cloud. So then it's all based on your iCloud IDs and all that stuff. Uh, actually, interesting fact with that is they force you to have two-factor authentication if you do it that way, which is great. I think yeah, that's a great that's thing to force you to do. Um, so here's the anecdote. Uh, because HomeKit is just kind of this obscure thing that Apple supports, but it's not really pushed all that hard. Uh, there was actually a really big security flaw that happened uh, two weeks ago, I think it was. Mm-hmm. You, They never validate whether you're allowed to send messages to a network. Um, so the issue was is that if someone basically man in the middle of you and got your tokens, they could unlock your doors and oh, they nice. could open your garage doors. <laughs> um, as such, Apple did a server fix and they didn't let you add anyone to your home. So, like, I would be the only one allowed to touch my network, mm. and they basically shut down any sharing capabilities. Because I was spending hours trying to debug my wife's phone because she's like, I can't open anything or do anything with my phone anymore. And then I found some obscure article that that actually did that. So, so, um, so just before you continue, like, if I yeah. joined your Wi-Fi, would I be able to see your HomeKit stuff or not? Or do I have um, to be, I th- like, how do I get, how do I get permission to that? No, that's that's a good point. Um, I'm trying I'm trying to remember. And this is where it gets a little fuzzy with some of the details on the user aspect. Mm, I got. I believe because because I have everything locked onto my Apple TV now, especially, yeah. and it's tied to me. I don't think you would be able to do it okay. without joining. Because one thing I can do is I can actually grant you access. Yeah. And I can say that you're allowed remote access. I can also say whether okay. you're not allowed remote Go access. Go ahead and do that. That'd but you fun. can have access on my network. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, we're good there. Um, but if you were here, I can let you have access as long as you're on the network. I got gotcha. you. So well, just there are some too, tiers. Like I have, I have security camera software that's like running on my home network. I'm wondering, like, why can't I access it then through through HomeKit? You know, if they well, if I, they expose it through the application, that could work, right? Right. So what you would have to do there is, well, you would need a plug-in to bring it into HomeBridge yeah. uh, or write your own HomeKit service, which would be a pain. Um, well, I'm thinking they should, then, like the, the creators of the software, my security software, they should right. <clears throat> they should do that. That'd be cool. Yeah, they totally could. Because if it yeah. was a native HomeKit device, it'd basically be like a bridge or a, a basically register itself as a camera That's or whatever. Cool. Um, then you would be able to see it. Uh, if you have an Apple TV three, you can, you can't access remote cameras. If you have an Apple TV four, you can. Okay. So you should be able to see that remotely then all through your home application. Okay. So it's, it's been quite the learning experience doing this. Uh, I do have a couple repositories out there of different things. Um, the, the interesting piece is that 
because there's you're not supporting just like one device, you're supporting a platform, uh, especially with this home bridge kind of aspect. Um, you'll run into these little snafu kind of things with like, oh, uh, Homebridge didn't update, but now it broke support for this third-party plugin. So like, I've had to issue pull requests because like, well, I want mine working, so I may as well you know fix it and then pull request it. Um, and then other people will be like, ah, oh, I haven't had this issue, right? And it's because like the latest example is like Chamberlain changed their APIs, and I'm guessing because they just created a new HomeKit product. Because uh, they're finally going to integrate, so I wonder if they're going to shut their APIs down and charge me a hundred bucks. But it's it's stuff like that. So if you want that perfect, flawless, you know, everything just works. As crazy as it sounds, Apple's not the way to go in this scenario because no one really supports it. Um, if you want to tinker and you're okay with like, oh, I need to fix you know an API connection or something like that, um, you know, and I'm totally cool with that. Then HomeKit's actually a lot of fun. Um, and I, I learned a lot about like networking protocols and uh, something I just learned over the last was that like a week ago. Uh, bonjour, how everything like discovers itself yeah. sucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did not know that that can't go over VLANs very well. Um, so I, I found some limitations there, but a um, lot of lot of good experiences and learned a lot of neat networking things out of that project. So with mere hundreds hundreds of hours of, of work, you too can save seconds of time. Exactly. That's exactly how it turned out too. So, it, you know, honestly, it is really convenient because, you know, you can set up automations and all that stuff. But So yeah, how I is that from your phone? Because I mean, the, the, the whole advantage, because like I have smart things and I... I don't, I never go into the app. I pretty much automated everything, but I can go into the app and I can control everything, but it's a pain. Cause like half the time too, like at one point they changed their authentication. They're like, you must log in again. I'm like, no, I just want to turn on my lights. Like I don't want to log in. So with HomeKit, I mean, is it, is it like that convenient? I mean, cause I think you can just pull it up even if you're not, lo- if you're not, if your phone's on, not even unlocked, I think you can pull it up. Is that true? Or do you have to unlock so, your phone? Um, for non, I'll say non-secure devices, you can use Siri, okay. you can swipe up control center and okay. do all that stuff without but unlocking. But the point is, though, that it's like super quick to access your devices, right? Right. It okay. is. And then for secure things, except for this exploit that was found a couple weeks ago, like your garage door and stuff. Um, like if I say, hey, open the garage door, I have to like touch ID or yeah. enter my code. Right? Okay. Because they don't want just anyone grabbing your phone and going, yeah, I can get in your house. Mm-hmm. So they do. They try to be secure in those areas. OK. And I need they, to get a door lock and see how that works. And then so can you not- geofence it so that if you like you and your wife are outside of the geofence, it'll lock your doors and yes. close your garage door. Yep. OK. Yep. To you can me, do all that geofencing. Yeah, to me, geofencing is like the biggest, biggest thing for home automation, to be honest, because like, I, you know, I'm not at home right now. My wife's not at home. So I know that my thermostat automatically turned the temperature way down. Um, and if I had a, you know, smart door lock and smart garage door, like it would be nice to know, hey, we've automatically locked your door. We've closed the garage door like you're good to go. Yeah, Nate, it's actually kind of nice because like, sadly, you can't see any of this unless you have devices, right? You can't open the home app and just poke around. Yeah. You need to have a device to see all of the features right. it has. But since I do have devices, I can see those features. And like the geofencing is actually pretty cool. So you can like, if I leave my house, but my wife is still home, I can tell it like only automatically lock the doors if no one is home. Right. So that way I'm not like leaving the house and it just goes into security lockdown mode. It's like, wait, yeah. I'm still here. <laughs> um, so you can you can do stuff like that. Um, you can do, you know, the leave, arrive, all that stuff. 
Um, you can you can also tap into not just like locks and things like that. I can say like when I get home, turn the lights on. Um, I can do stuff like uh, I don't have any motion sensors yet. That's one of the things I want to get next. But you could even do like when this motion sensor trips and this person's home, do this automation. So you can kind of combine some of that stuff together. Um, and then, of course, because I have Homebridge, I'm not limited to just the things that Apple does. I can tie into, you know, I can use if this, then that. I could say when I get home, kick off a tweet like, hey, guys, I'm home or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's one thing I actually really like about Homebridge. And I, I don't know what the other ecosystems are like, but the sky's the limit. I can do almost anything with it. Okay. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications, supports all major programming languages and platforms, and integrates with your current development workflow tools too. There's a free 14-day trial, and it takes minutes to implement. So start resolving issues in your application and check it out today at raygun.com. Okay, very cool. Um, okay, what do I want to pick for my next one? I guess, you know, I have talked about this on the show again, but I, I'll, I'll kind of go over it again. Uh, so the, the next one that I want to talk about was um, the podcast website and my personal website. Um, recently, you know, I really wanted to play around with Docker. So I used, you know, basically containerized both of those things. And I actually wrote up a blog post and we'll have that in the show notes, but I have a blog post that goes through like how I actually containerize it. It's actually pretty simple. Um, and then, um, I was able to play around with basically every combination of how to actually host this thing. Uh, so I host it on a Linux website. That's actually what I settled with. Um, you can host it in an Azure container instance. Um, I also did set up a Kubernetes cluster using the Azure Kubernetes service. Um, and I hosted it within there. Um, and I just get to play with all of those things. Um, so it's, it's been a great example for that. And then in that case, I wrote up a blog post and really for each of these things, I should, you know, either have a good readme or write up a blog post. In this case, it made sense. I couldn't really, you know, I think I added some information to the readme. But to really explain like the the build process and like why I changed and like what benefits I saw, um, I felt like writing a, a blog post for that. Um, so, you know, this was just an example of the again, the thing that I was doing, I don't think was that important, although we actually saw some pretty significant benefits, but it was more about you know, the thing that I'm learning in this case, like I actually know reasonably well, like the things that I can do to Dockerize it and application. Um, I know like how they can communicate with each other. I know how to host them in different ways. Um, I even understand kind of the Azure hosting model a little bit better because, you know, Azure is, it's kind of interesting because you have an app service plan in Azure and then you can have Azure websites and they basically share the app service plan. So all of my websites are running in the same app service plan. That isn't entirely true because I have a Windows app service plan and a Linux one. I'm actually trying to get everything over to Linux now. Um, you know, so I'm slowly dockerizing my my older websites. Uh, but basically, I can create a new website for each one, pull it from a Docker container, and then I can run them all in the same app service plan. So that that base, you know, VM that I don't even manage is literally just running, you know, a pile of Docker containers. And again, it's all managed for me. If that machine needs upgraded, they'll just move my Docker containers to a different machine. Um, it's just a, it's a great way of doing things. Um, it also kind of, um, 
you know, made me just look at everything about, you know, how can I dockerize these things? So one thing that I was doing recently, for example, was um, I have, you know, I, I've, I obviously have a lot of Azure functions I've been playing with. Well, I found out recently that you could containerize Azure functions. Um, so I actually did that. I don't, I'm not really running anything in production, but I did, I did try it. Um, basically using a Linux virtual machine, I took, um, I took a whole bunch of my, um, uh, my Azure functions. I took that, you know, it was basically running locally and I tested it locally. And then I built that into a Docker container and then I deployed that to Azure, which I think is really cool because, I really think like the future is just running everything inside of Docker container or having some kind of deployment packaging like that, that, that it just makes a ton of sense. And even taking something like Azure functions, which the kind of the whole point is to scale. Um, but it's nice being able to put that in there and I can, you know, use the runtime to do things like, Hey, every 10 seconds, I want you to wake up and I want you to send this message. Like it's a great framework for a Docker container for, for that type of thing. And then I can just manage that Docker container. So again, it was, it was just, learning about the combinations and the way that these things work. And it's really opening my eyes to, to how this stuff works. Um, so that was just why I wanted to mention that one. Uh, and I, I think Docker is a technology that can, once you learn the basis of it, you yeah. find way more uses of it than you anticipated. Yeah. And what's interesting is I, I tried deploying some of my functions. You can actually deploy those to Linux now. So you can say, I want my Azure functions to run on Linux in Azure. And I was getting an error and then I started running it locally in a Docker container on Linux and I was actually getting the same error. I actually wonder, and I, I honestly don't have inside information on this. Um, and I, knowing them, it's probably very open and there's probably a document that actually describes how this works. I actually think what they're doing, if you want to run your functions on Linux, I actually think they're packaging them up inside of a Docker container. And that's actually how they're doing it on windows. They use uh, something called Kudu. Um, but it looks like based on me getting like the exact same messages that they are actually literally packaging their stuff into a Docker container and just deploying it to a machine. So if they want to, that's skid, what they're doing for, isn't that what they're doing for app services on Linux? I thought they said that at build. Uh, they're, they're just running a container behind the scenes. Well, yes, for 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 like a website, yes, for sure. Right. So it seems like they would for functions then as well. Well, exactly. So again, I, I'm pretty confident that that's what they're doing. I'm I'm just saying I don't I don't have like something in a document that says yes, this is what we're doing. So I, I don't know what 100 percent for sure, uh, but I'm pretty confident that that's exactly what they're doing. And then it starts to make sense, like why doesn't everything just switch to this? You know, so functions, it just makes sense as they scale up, just deploy, keep deploying that Docker container. Um, it just gives them, you know, before Docker w existed, you know, with Kudu, they had to sort of make their own thing up, their own packaging system and move these things around. So I just wonder if, if Docker is just going to be the way forward there, which would be pretty cool. Uh, back to you, Carl, what do you want to talk about next? So, you know, my first example is like, you know, having, having a problem you're trying to solve and kind of turning that into a learning experience. The next one is kind of like a piece of random trivia and just having that pro progress into uh, an experience. So I was part of this uh, online community where uh, somebody had asked a question about robots.txt. So we all know what that is. That's for like how to uh, control search engines as they're uh, crawling your site. And as part of that, you know, he kind of understood what I was talking about. So I kind of mentioned humans.txt. And, uh, you thought that was pretty interesting. So, um, as a side note, if you go to msdevshow.com slash humans.txt, we have one, mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty cool. But one of the questions he ended up having for me was like, 
how many sites actually have humans.txt? Yep. I'm like, well, I don't know. But you know what? Let's crawl the top million sites and figure this out. So, <laughs> so this sense. is where we, so we start down this journey. So, you know, me, what I did is, you know, I found, I think it was a, a Alexa, you know, where they just tell you what the top sites are. They have a listing that you can grab as a CSV as whatever the top million sites are. So I'm like, well, I'll, I'll use that as the, just the starting point. And uh, just because... You know, I kind of always go to a console app for quick and dirty things, and this seemed quick and dirty. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go through and see if they have it and save it to a database if they have mm-hmm. it and with a bunch of metadata and all that stuff. And so that worked great, but I'm like like monitoring this. I'm like, this is going to take a while. So just doing some you – know, like after a day, I did back of the napkin math. I'm like, this is going to take about a month to run. <laughs> so that was just and sequential, right? So the initial yep, version? So that's just sequential. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to paralyze this. So I'm going to go paralyze it. So uh, I did, and it actually like reduced it down to uh, uh, like a day and a half. So that's a pretty good improvement. Well, yeah, if you do 30, yeah, if it's going to take a month and you do 30 at a time, right? Then it yep. should take <laughs> one day. <laughs> so it's at this point, I'm like, you know what? I kind of always do things like this. I kind of do console apps. Let's take this up a notch. So First things first, let's get this to the cloud, lift and shift. I'm just going to make it a web job because a web job is just a console go. app that you run. So you run a console, you, literally just a console app, publishes web job, bam. Um, I was seeing similar things. So I was getting it to be like uh, parallel uh, to be about that day and a half, mm-hmm. give or take. Um, and then I'm like, let's push this. And if I found out if you push beyond your scale size um, – I, I was getting it back when I I tried doubling what my optimal was, mm-hmm. and it was taking a month again. <laughs> so you know, it was like really like okay, you know, th- this is you know, like while I if I was manually kind of keeping track of this, I could scale it. If I scaled it up, then I could do the parallel up, and that was fine. But that's a lot of work. So I was like, all right, let's make this next progression, and um, let's let's put this in it. I'm still gonna have. A console app, but that console app is going to feed some Azure functions. So it's basically just going to feed it the URLs mm-hmm. and I'm just going to just blow through it as fast <laughs> as I can. And we're going to have the auto, uh, Azure functions automatically, you know, scale up for me. And um, now I, I'm at a point where once I did that and went to DocDB instead of a SQL database, now I'm sitting there at about two hours. I can crawl a million websites and well- save all of all of their responses. So, so you were from a console app. You were calling in the Azure Functions. So, so basically, I'm just using it. So, I'm basically feeding the Azure Functions the endpoint to test. Because okay. Otherwise, they're stateless. Okay. It's just kind of funny because don't you still you so you basically are making a still making a million requests, but you're making it to Azure Functions. Yeah. So basically, what I'm doing instead of, uh, but then it doesn't you know making making the request itself. I'm just saying like firing Fire and forgetting. Forget. So, ah, okay, okay. So, so that's so why the Azure okay. Function. So Azure function basically is just getting this flood of stuff. It's like, oh, I could better scale out as fa- you know to meet this demand, yeah. and it's just saving it to the Cosmos now. And now I can uh, query the information out of there. Ah, uh-huh, okay, that's cool. so. So going starting from the month down to like a day and a half, back up to a month, and now down to a couple hours. That's cool. So so did it? Um, do you have any idea like what that cost? I mean, was it uh, uh, like nothing? So I, I know the web job when I was in the web job for, for, format, it would cost about two or three dollars a day. Okay. And and the overall is about two or three dollars to just kick this off once. So yeah. 
well, it would take me that, you know, you know, I, I'm not really, when you look at that, I'm, I may be saving a little bit by doing this, but I'm getting the information way faster. So yeah. sometimes it's not purely about cost savings. Sometimes you can squeeze a lot more performance. Yeah. Out of that once you are. Well, I was just wondering if you're just broke, you know, monitoring these sites or if it costs almost nothing. (laughs) That was really what I was getting at. So at at the end of the day, for me to monitor a million sites, I mean, if I check once a day. Yeah. It's a couple of bucks. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, And and you know, for excessive. you know, I've got MSDN credits to spare, so yeah. <laughs> you, you know, go. I don't mind this, and, and I'm actually yeah. monitoring this like on a daily basis. I'm keeping track of changes, so <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. I mean, it's cool building something at scale like that. So yeah, and, and like I said, sometimes it's those uh, opportunities that you don't even realize, like somebody asking you about you know like this trivial question and just saying, "Hey, let's find out." Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what to talk about next. I think, I think I want this to be my last round, but I, you know, I'll kind of go through and I'll do this as kind of a lightning round. Cause I have, I have a whole bunch of kind of recent repositories that you might be interested in. You can go take a look at. Uh, so I'll just kind of go through them and, and mention what they are from a high level. So I have one out here, uh, appointment slots. This one actually was, was built for the MS dev show. So I've always talked about how scheduling is the hardest thing. Um, what this does That's the worst. Yeah. What what I wanted to be able to do was basically block off appointments on my calendar and have those show up on the website so that when, you know, it's easy for us to reach out to somebody and say, yo, you want to be on this, on the show? And then, and then they're like, they go, yes. And then I'm like, oh, I'm like, now, now the excruciating process begins of finding <laughs> a, con- and, I, and I'm aware of like fine time and things like that. Uh, but you know, uh, if, if we have like 10 potential guests at the same time, then I have to like block off different you know, appoint appointments for all of them. It's, it's a mess. So literally all this does is it reads my calendar and it, it displays a page that says here are the available appointment slots, uh, for, for a potential user. And we have that at a, at a certain URL. So, um, the issue that I ran into is, is working with the Microsoft graph, uh, is, is fairly easy. The hard part is, is the authentication. So actually allowing sort of an anonymous resource to read the details of my calendar is just not really happening. <laughs> so I I had pretty much given up and then I and then I was thinking about like you know Outlook uh you know the web version has this option where you can publish out uh, like a web-based view of what your availability is. So I started looking at that and I'm like, wait a second, there's an option in here too to publish an iCal. So there is literally like a URL that has a token in it that lets me get an iCal feed of my calendar. So I was like, okay, now we're talking because now I can just write a script that reads from that iCal feed and will display the stuff. So uh, to make a long story short, I wrote it as an Azure function so that when I call the function with the right token, um, it has the token that's needed to read from my iCal feed. It basically filters out only the appointments that are, that are relevant here. And then I can display them on a web page. Uh, that's pretty ugly, but it gets the job done. Um, let's see what else I got here. Um, speaking of calendars, I have another one. We, we actually, uh, for work, we actually store a lot of the things that we do. A lot of the activities, we actually store those activities in VSTS. So I wrote, um, I wrote a an Azure function that makes it so it publishes an iCal feed uh, for the VSTS items. So I can basically put this into Outlook and it will show me the activities that people entered and what dates they entered them for. Uh, this thing has a whole bunch of tokens in it that are 
I should say, um, basically magic strings that are specific to our VSTS setup. So you have to change those. Uh, but still, you know, again, this would be code. If you want to do something similar, you could at least see how I did things. Uh, we have another one here for generating subtitles for our podcast using the, uh, the MS video indexer service. That one's kind of neat. That was for our channel nine publishing. Uh, let's see. What else do I have here? Um, I have another one for, uh, scraping our, so we, we host our podcast on Libsyn and, uh, we have to, you know, I want to be able to get the stats and I wanted to pull those into power BI. So basically this thing, whenever you it's an Azure function, again, Azure functions are great for data transformations, by the way, whenever I call <laughs> it an Azure function, what it will do is it will actually log into Libsyn download like the CSV, it will convert it to JSON and then return that as, as the response to this. So you can just, if, if once you set up your Azure function, I can literally go into power BI and say, here is my, here is my feed and it will, uh, it will pull in that data. Um, and then I also have some code in here and this will be the last one I talk about, but I have some code in here, a couple different projects for pulling in toll data for the 405 tolls. Um, I actually, um, set up an Azure function to pull in data on a regular schedule, uh, calls their API, stores that into a SQL database. And then I also set up some Power BI dashboard so I can look and see like when traffic actually picks up on a regular basis by, uh, by you know, day of the week. And I can figure out what time I need to leave my house to avoid traffic. So I think that's all I want to talk about. I mean, I have lots and lots more here, but I'm not going to go through all of those. So go ahead, Carl. What do you got next? Are you out? Uh that's all that I had prepared, but uh, does Brandon, do you have anything else? Um, sure, I could throw one more out there. So um, semi-related actually to the last one, um, I, I plan on releasing a, a blog post or a couple of blog posts on it. Um, so in all of this networking stuff that I've been doing, uh, it's kind of been the theme of my last couple months. Um, been trying to squeeze performance out of routers and things like that. Uh, I've finally been looking into the world of like third-party um, router firmware. Mm -hmm. So uh, if anyone's ever done it, DDWRT is one of the most popular. OpenWRT is another one. Uh, if you have one of the Asus routers, there's uh, Magic. Oh, what is it? It's Magic WRT or something like that. Merlin. Merlin WRT. Uh, the one I picked up was Tomato. Uh, so I've been working with Tomato for the last few weeks, um, just kind of taking advantage of uh, a new router I picked up. Uh, which honestly is mind blowing because uh, you throw it on there and it tells you like the amount of RAM it has and the processor. Um, it's it's actually like a really beefy like Raspberry Pi kind of setup. So what I've been doing is just kind of optimizing my my home network uh, to fit not just you know daily use needs things like you know my personal and work computers or my mobile devices, but uh, some other needs like um, you know I have a lot of people that come over here uh, and. You know, I never really like the built-in guest network that a lot of the routers have. It's always really cumbersome, and it tends to work kind of like a captive portal. So, like, if they don't open yeah. a browser right away or whatever, it's just a pain. And I'm like, oh, it'd be so nice to have, like, a separate, dedicated, true guest network. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't want to give up one of your, you know, bands to give that to somebody. So what's nice about Tomato and some of the others do this as well. So you can do virtual wireless networks. So basically one of your bands can broadcast multiple networks. Um, so uh, I've been doing a lot of stuff like that. Um, customizing some of the more uh, lower level routing stuff. Like uh, I mentioned earlier, I had that issue with VLANs uh, and Bonjour. Uh, so 
really just getting in the world of VLAN stuff and segregating all of my automated home devices into yeah. my own network so idea. that all the chatter isn't coming across. And not only that, uh, but Wemo, because I use a lot of Wemo stuff, uh, if you had the Wemo app, you would be able to control my stuff. Mm-hmm. So by putting them on a separate network, they're more or less isolated. Dang it. So. Not so. <laughs> J- Jason from across the country controlling my stuff. Ignore the van um, parked outside. <laughs> yeah, you can see I'm sitting in a vehicle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's not not so much like just a code repository or anything like that, but uh, more of just the process of how do you how do you really squeeze that networking performance for a home situation that makes sense. That isn't just overkill. Like, yeah, I'm running five VLANs. How about you? Yeah. Right. It's it's practically uh, using them. Yeah. Have you done anything with QoS quality of service? Yes. Um, So that's, I've learned a lot more about QoS in the last couple of months. Um, Before I thought it was just, you know, um, optimizing your outgoing bandwidth um, so that, you know, people aren't flooding your upstream. Yeah. Because that's generally a more precious one that people have. Yep. Um, but there's also QoS for incoming as well, uh, things like that. And I'm like, well, why do I care so much about incoming? Because the request has been made. Yeah. Right. It's like it's already gone out there. What am I? What am I QoSing? Yeah. And uh, it's a, it's a actually a really confusing topic, but it, it basically says, well, it's how quickly those requests are managed and returned, mm. and basically how to treat that pipeline going in and out. So I. I actually have QoS off right now because I'm still kind of tweaking it, uh, and I've I've also upped my upstream bandwidth a bit, so it's not as much of an issue. But that is one of the pieces I'm still actively tweaking and and seeing like what's best for my network. Mm-hmm. The hard part is is that unlike a lot of other things when it comes to your home network and routers and stuff like that, QoS is a very personal thing. Like your QoS setup will not be anything like anyone else's, even if you're doing very similar things because you're going to have different devices. You're going to want different priorities. You pretty much kind of have to just kind of monitor and see like, what am I actually doing on my network? Yeah. And then build your profile. Classified traffic and try to classify it. See, I found it to be like endless tinkering and I finally Mm -hmm. just gave up. Like if you had super constrained bandwidth, I think it would probably be very useful. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that I'm on fiber, especially like, um, it's, it's virtually infinite speed, both directions and QoS mm-hmm. like actually slows things down, um, in my mm-hmm. experience. So I don't know, are you familiar with my setup? You know, it's interesting. You're talking about your router. Like, I think what you're saying, um, makes a ton of sense. Like the, the, the aftermarket firmware, uh, makes so much sense. And I think part of it is because, um, it can reach a broader audience and it's not just, you know, manufacturer A writing something just because they have to. They're interested in selling the hardware and they happen to have to write the software. Are, are you familiar with my setup? So I guess I can explain I, I don't for think, the listeners. Yeah, I don't think so, I know what you're running right now. Okay, so I I want to do something similar. Um, my router was actually pretty reliable. I mean, I had to reboot it every once in a while. It's a TP-Link. I've been, actually been super happy with it. Um, but I would have... You know, when it would go haywire, like my wired connections, like, you know, would go haywire, right? Like, you know, and even even though it only happened like once every couple of months, like something wacky would happen and I'd be like, oh, I got to go reboot the router. And like, it was just like, I'd bring everything down. Um, so what I did is I bought this little, it's $50. It's a Ubiquiti Edge Router X. Basically what I did is I ripped out the router functionality from my wireless. So I have my router. It was actually just doing router stuff. 
And then I have my wireless access point. And if I ever have wireless issues, I can go reboot that. And I know like all my Roku's and all that kind of stuff, they're all hardwired. I know that those will keep streaming my server, my desktop, like all the important stuff will maintain its connection. It's just that our phones will just lose their Wi-Fi for a little bit. That edge router X, um, has been 100% reliable. It has yet to glitch at all whatsoever. Um, I'd have to check on the uptime. I did reboot it once because I thought it was causing issues, but it was actually the internet connection itself uh, just was was glitching for a second. Um, so I was kicking myself because that was kind of wasted. Because um, I my the first when I did that, it had been up like two months, and I think it's been up like three months now. Uh, I was gonna say you lost your uptime number. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I could have been, no! I could have been at like six plus months. Uh, I'm pretty convinced, you know, because it lets me monitor like the CPU and you know memory and everything else. Um, it it looks like it will just run forever. Like I'm pretty confident that you could just run it for years without a reboot, and it's managing all that wired traffic and has every feature you could possibly imagine. You can j- even jump into a console if you want to. Um, so for fifty bucks, I actually think that's an amazing option. Uh, to do, to do things that way. And then I can sort of upgrade, you know, if I go get a new wireless access point, like it's super quick to set up because I just have to set up the Wi-Fi information and plug it into this other one. Oh, and I have to, you know, turn off the router functionality, obviously. Uh, but I feel like, you know, that chip will run a lot cooler, uh, in the wireless access point, you know, like it's, it's not just, it's not doing two different jobs. It's, it just has one job to do. And it seems like my network is way more stable because of it. So I'm very happy with my setup. Well, you know, if you look at like corporate networks and stuff, that's that's more or less what they're doing, right? Yeah. You have switches for your traffic, for your wired traffic. You generally have a router only as a gateway device that goes yep. to a modem, and then you have dedicated access points for your wireless. It mm-hmm. there's a reason that that's all separate. And you don't just have these bundled units all over the place because right. it's easier to replace one piece of functionality than it is to just tear down your entire network. Yep. So, yeah, no, that that sounds like a fantastic setup. Um the the only thing like with with mine is that um, from the router perspective, I've never had wired issues all that much because I normally only use my router as a gateway. Mm-hmm. Everything else is normally plugged into a switch. So yeah. even if my router goes down, your DHCP leases or your static IPs would never expire. Of course, um, everything can still communicate as long as it's wired because it's going over switched traffic. So yeah. I don't mind having that piece as an all in one, yep. but if I had more stuff plugged into the router, I probably would yep. probably look at your type of setup. Yeah. So actually, so my, I have a router and then it goes into a big, like 24 port switch. The, uh, so the router itself, like I said, it's, it's just routing. My switch is just switching and yeah. my Wi-Fi is just Wi-Fiing. So, um, I really like it. It is, it is nice, clean separation. <laughs> you heard it here first folks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. Anybody, <laughs> anybody have any other comments on personal projects or should we move on? Going once, going twice. I'm good. Okay. Uh, so Carl, looks like you have an Azure pick of the week. Yes. Um, in, uh, Visual Studio 15.5, there's some new Azure function support and, um, it's pretty cool. So first of all, there's the Azure function, um, uh, new, uh, project dialog. So you can just do file new project and it'll scaffold out for you either an empty or a triggered um, function. And not only that, but there's now .NET core support too. So before you had to be like full framework, now you can choose between the two. Uh, you can automatically wire in some of your uh, storage um, and you can manage uh, when you deploy this, uh, 
the the settings that are in the cloud. So normally you'd have your local settings for, you know, debugging your and running your functions locally, but those would just kind of stay local. Now you can integrate that with the cloud. And also when you're doing a deploy, if for some reason you're using a different version of your runtime locally, it'll tell you that and give you the option to tell the cloud to run at a different version level. So lots of cool things jam-packed into a you know a quick little 30-second synopsis. Check out the uh, show notes for all of the details. Okay, perfect. Um, I don't have the game with me, so I apologize to our listeners. <laughs> so, uh, Brandon, where can people find you? All right, you can find me just about anywhere. So Twitter, uh, at Brandon Martinez. Yeah, <laughs> Brown, yeah. I'm there. He's out the window. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not in a van outside in the street. I'm like Jason here. Well, I'm in the um, van. I can see you in the window, though. <laughs> hi. Um, so, yeah, you can find me mostly on Twitter, uh, but I'm on Instagram, uh, Facebook, things like that. Uh, and then, as mentioned earlier, uh, kicked off a new podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Average Enthusiast, as well as on Twitter uh, and other forums, uh, podcast app, uh, Google Play, all that fun stuff. So give us a listen. You're, you're making us look really bad because you're a photographer, you're a musician, you're a podcaster, <laughs> <laughs> you're a developer. Come on, man. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let, sorry. let the rest of us, you know, have some some stuff that we can that we can do. OK, where can people find you, Carl? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. So, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on again. I know it's been a while, but uh, so glad that you could come back on here and talk about some of your personal projects. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me again.